Hi everybody, welcome to our second online podcast fest to commemorate World Menstrual Hygiene Day. This is the edition for 2023 and you guessed it, this is the Womenhood and International Relations Podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, and we created this second online podcast fest to bring light to stories and highlight different entrepreneurial initiatives, grassroots organizations, and stories on WASH projects that are bringing menstrual health, menstrual education, menstrual equity, and menstrual dignity to young girls, women, and menstruating people in different parts of the world. For this event, we have conducted interviews in the English and Spanish languages, so we invite you to check all related links down below in the description box. Without further ado, let's begin our conversation of today with Nicole Dagger, Project Manager at Water Aid Canada. Nicole, thank you so much for joining this podcast fest. Thank you for having me, Natalia. Really appreciate being here. Nicole, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today because of Water Aid's commitment to provide menstrual health, hygiene, and education that has benefited not only hundreds of women and girls, but also thousands in Sierra Leone, Liberia, Burkina Faso, and Pakistan. Could you share with us how the Hair Wash program started? Yeah, so I'd love to tell you a bit more about our Hair Wash project, which is a four-year project funded by Global Affairs Canada. And as you mentioned, it's being implemented in Burkina Faso, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and, and Pakistan. Um, at Water Aid Canada, menstrual hygiene is really an essential part of our integrated approach to water, sanitation, and hygiene, which we call WASH, um, and our contribution towards gender equity in homes, communities, within the education and health sectors, and in workplaces, um, and towards one of our priority goals, which is the health of women and girls. So based on our ways of working and the needs outlined by girls in schools and women in communities across the four countries, it was very evident that a project focusing on menstrual health and hygiene was needed to really help demystify myths and taboos, help to change perceptions and behaviors towards menstrual health and hygiene, and to provide wash infrastructure to ensure that women and girls in the four countries in the in the targeted communities, which are all rural, uh, can, 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 can continue to going to school, participating in daily life, and really making decisions over their own, own bodies. So as part of the Her Wash project, we really focus on three key uh, areas, and all of our projects are kind of within those, or activities are within those areas. But one is creating spaces where people can speak openly about menstruation, um, helping to tackle taboos and misconceptions, but also allowing people to make informed decisions uh, through informed discussion spaces and allowing women and girls to really be heard, which is often not the case, and engaging men and boys into the conversation as well. So you're bringing everybody within the community. We also provide WASH facilities that are suitable for menstrual hygiene in schools and healthcare facilities. And again, this is essential for women and girls to have somewhere clean, private, and safe so that they can wash themselves and change their, their materials. Um, and the third component of the project was really to promote the use of disposable and safe, culturally appropriate and affordable menstrual hygiene products, which were often unavailable or unaffordable for, for women in the communities we work in. 
Nicole, um, can you share with us, just to have a bit of context, what are some of the religious norms or the cultural um, norms that may be impacting um, young girls or women or menstruating people in these countries? Yeah, so this is something we definitely noticed when we were conducting the needs assessments and during the baseline evaluation from the onset of the project. But essentially, you found that men were not engaged in conversations regarding menstrual health and hygiene. It was often a woman's thing. Um, and they kind of refrain from engaging. Um, and we noticed in Liberia specifically, women 20 years in, of age and older were better informed than the younger girls and boys and men, but the information was not actually being shared or passed through to other generations. Um, and that was creating a big, big challenge because there was such a lack of information. We also know across the four countries um, that women are often prohibited from participating in daily tasks while they're menstruating. For instance, uh, in Pakistan, if a boy is sitting in a, in a chair, a girl cannot go and sit in that same chair while she's menstruating. Um, another example could really be in Liberia and Sierra Leone, girls were not allowed, girls and women were not allowed to enter religious institutions, so mosques, churches, while they were menstruating. So they weren't able to practice, um, during during the months or during the days when they were menstruating. Um, in Burkina Faso, we saw that women and girls could not serve or prepare certain foods uh, while they were menstruating as well. So there really is a lot of taboos and myths that are uh, that we've heard and that we've seen during uh, the needs assessments and the baselines. Um, and I think the one that really stands out to me is the feeling of being shamed um, or embarrassed for 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 menstruating. Um, oftentimes we heard from girls in Liberia in school saying they were embarrassed or they were made fun of by the boys if they were found to be menstruating um, and oftentimes would miss school because of it. So there's that real shame and embarrassment because of the lack of information that was that was available. It caused my attention, these uh, four countries, um, how were they selected for the program? So the way we work at WaterAid is based on the, the country strategy plans. So we work with countries that have health as a focus within their country strategy plans. So at the end, based on the needs, of course. Um, and we also think through from a, a holistic standpoint. So when we work, we work at the community level, but we also engage at the national government levels. So can we have the right partnerships across to really ensure that we are creating systemic changes as well as behavior changes um, and making sure that the governments are, as well as or are open to the conversation. So that's kind of we have like a shortlisting process that we go through that we we work our way around. But ultimately, it really does depend on the, the country strategy plans for each of the country and the needs that we're we're hearing from the community members themselves. Um, in terms of governments, uh, right now, um, Burkina Faso and Pakistan are experiencing conflicts um, and a lot of political stability. Is, has that impacted negatively your work there or has there uh, been some challenges but being able to find ways to continue doing the work? Yeah, so there's definitely been challenges. Um, we haven't really felt it in Pakistan at this point. Um, what we have felt in Pakistan is the flooding that occurred in September. So some of the communities were impacted where we do our, our where we do have our her wash project. 
Um, and for that, the large impact has been around the wash infrastructure components. So we've just managed to be able to rehabilitate and uh, and fix those. So that's it's been minimal, but still an impact for sure. Um, in in Burkina Faso, where there is political instability, that's where we have seen uh, some challenges. So at the onset of the project, we've been working in the Cascade region of Bamfora, which is where most of the, the conflict is currently taking place, or there's instability. Um, and we had targeted 50 municipalities. But as a result of that, we've had to kind of shift where we are able to work just for the safety and security of our teams and the, the community members. Um, so we've had to shift where we do our work and, and what schools we're able to reach. At one point, we were trying to do a lot of things virtually. Um, but at some point, as we all know, working from home and working in a hybrid mode, virtual is good up to a certain point, but at some point you need the, the, the in-person interactions. So we've had to readjust where we work, um, to be able to, to continue our project. But I think, what is quite impressive in Burkina Faso, even with the challenges that they are experiencing, there has been quite a bit of government involvement um, and government uptake of the project, even as the governments have changed over the course of the project, um, especially in the last coup. So even through a transitional government, uh, we're seeing the, mens- the mens- Ministry of Education is taking on menstrual health and hygiene into their education curriculum. Um, a couple of municipalities, we have three municipalities that have incorporated, uh, the operations and maintenance of wash infrastructures that have, that have been rehabilitated and constructed as part of their budgets. So even with the transition government, there's, there's still positive update. It was just the initial phase of where do we work and what's safe enough for us to work in that region. You know, it's very interesting, this holistic approach that you have to the program and this connection to the government, to the community and to um, civic society. Um, can you explain to us how is that um, uh, creating or positively creating an, an, an environment that welcomes menstrual health, hygiene and education? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we do really well at WaterAid um, is the, the advocacy work that we do both at local level, community level, but also at the national level with government. Um, and our HerWash project is really no exception because without systemic change, it's really hard to create that sustainable change that we're, we're all looking for and to really have an impact on the lives of women and girls. Um, so for us, really, it's to work at all levels to ensure that what is being promoted at the community level is also being taken on by at the national or local level. Um, and as I mentioned in Burkina Faso and in Liberia, WaterAid has worked with the respective ministries of education and in collaboration with UNICEF to develop menstrual health and hygiene guides for teachers to help guide conversations with their students uh, with proper information uh, in schools. And in Burkina Faso, the Ministry of Education has gone even one step further to revise the whole education curriculum to include menstrual health and hygiene as a teachable subject. Um, and we're working with individuals at the, the local level to make sure that they are monitoring the, the topics during their quarterly visits as well. Um, so those are some of the, the components that are happening um, in Burkina and Liberia. And I think one of the components is also we work with civil society organizations and community-based organizations. Like we don't do everything alone. So how can we work with other organizations 
that have the same passion as we do to really have a larger impact and a larger scale impact. Um, I've also just recently mentioned the three municipalities in Burkina Faso in the Cascade region that have incorporated menstrual health and hygiene into their budgets to ensure the operations and maintenance of the toilets, hand washing stations and water access points. Um, because as part of the HerWash project, we've constructed or rehabilitated um, water like wash infrastructure. So usually that's toilets with a hand washing station as well as uh, menstrual hygiene cabins. So girls can have the space to to change their, their menstrual products, wash themselves, wash their, uh, their pads as required um, and access to water in 81 schools and 23 healthcare facilities. But in order for those to be upkept, um, principals, head teachers, parent teacher associations, local government all need to be involved in making sure that we can keep those up to date. Um, and we're seeing municipalities in Burkina Faso incorporating that budget so that they can maintain the infrastructures. Um, in Sierra Leone, we're also seeing it with the education department in Kailan district, um, where they actually dedicated, I believe it's 0.5% of their budget towards uh, wash infrastructures, but also menstrual health and hygiene sensitization. Um, and in Pakistan, I believe it was 70 engineers from the education department in Sin province, where we have the project, were trained on the water aid model for construction of latrines. Um, and the idea is that moving forward, all school blocks, all toilets that are going to be constructed in schools will now uh, follow this model as well, which previously wasn't wasn't the case. As you were mentioning before, um, the floods in Pakistan, um, right now climate change is also a very big uh, issue affecting um, water <laughs> access, <laughs> clean water access and also uh, menstrual health and education um, and food security and more. Um, can you share with us if um, there has been some climate adaptive changes to your program um, in order to cater to the communities better? Yeah, so actually all of our our construction work has to be climate resilient. Like that's actually one of the, the components to making sure that they are long lasting. Um, and we also construct um, rainwater harvesting tanks in communities where we know that there is a sufficient flow of rain uh, that comes through, um, in addition to hand dug wells so that there is uh, provision of water year round. So we do look at various components within the, the school systems and healthcare facilities to make sure that we are taking climate into consideration and understanding that there are shifting patterns as well. Um, so we work with technical experts. So we do have technical engineers on our teams in each of the countries where we work in, but we also work with local government to follow their national guidelines when doing any form of construction work. So all of that is definitely taken into consideration and we're always looking to find innovative ways to see how we can make things work better. Um, and one of the components we've integrated in this is waste disposal. So how can you safely dispose of menstrual products um, as opposed to just burning them or burying them, which is the usual or custom practice. Um, so as we moved on with the project, we've had to pivot depending on the situations that we've we found ourselves in. 
In terms of the positive impact of her WASH program, what are some stories about changes that were very positive in Sierra Leone, in Liberia, Burkina Faso, or Pakistan? Yeah, I think this is one of my favorite questions you've asked so far, actually. <laughs> um, so I think one of the main things that I really appreciate about this project is women having becoming more empowered to make their own decisions and really advocating for what their needs are. Um, and we saw this in Sierra Leone where women have come together that access the central market to advocate for the construction of a girl women friendly toilet. Um, and the, the district listened and they're now constructing a toilet block floor for these women. Um, in Liberia, I had a chance to go to Liberia in, in March, um, just a couple months ago. And we were there during World Water Day where community champions, which are part of the project, are trained on menstrual health and hygiene, uh, leadership, um, and advocacy work. And one of the girls who was an 18 year old, first time speaking at a podium, first time speaking to a room filled with her peers, but also a room filled with decision makers from the district who are largely men. Um, and here she was first time up on a podium asking the district to really put wash and menstrual health and hygiene into their budget. And both the district president and the youth chairperson stood up, applauded her and said, we will actually take this into consideration. We've heard you and we will take this forward. And for me, hearing girls being able to kind of stand up and take ownership and being able to express what their needs are is a huge, huge component for me. And I think, yes, this is part of the Her Wash project because we've trained them, we've given this space, but ultimately they're creating the space and they're standing up for their own rights and their own needs. And I think that's, that's really big for me. Um, and I think the other things that we've heard, so again, also around the same time frame, I had a chance to go to Burkina Faso. And one thing that we heard both Burkina, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and through our colleagues in, in Pakistan is that girls were often either leaving school when they got their periods or staying home for up to five days when they're menstruating um, because they didn't have the space to change and they didn't have the products to, to change. Um, but now with the wash infrastructures in place, the accessibility of menstrual products, girls are either no longer returning home and they're staying in school. So there's been a reduction in absenteeism, which wasn't a part of the project goals or outputs, actually. But it's like an unintended impact that I think has proven to be probably one of the most effective ones. Because we all, I think we all know educate the importance of education. Um, and if I think of... Another activity where we've had to pivot is the menstrual products. So we work in very rural communities where menstrual products were either so expensive that they were just unaffordable or because of the distance from the capitals, they were just not accessible. So they weren't available in, in the communities. So part of the HerWash project after doing like a gap assessment to really understand what the challenges are, a market assessment, we, we trained about 150 women and men, predominantly women, um, in making and selling reusable pads. Um, and ultimately these women are now, like there's about two from each community where we work in. Some of them have created cooperatives. Some are working in associations together and some are working as individual business, business owners, essentially. 
Um, but they're selling the products and making a small income out of it. And one woman in Pakistan who has two daughters, uh, she noted how her husband had passed. So she was really reliant on family members who may or may not be providing support. And oftentimes we're not providing support to her. But as a result of being trained on how to make and and sell these products and linking her to markets, um, she's now able to feed her family and send her two girls to school. And she's helping to educate other women on their menstrual health and hygiene as well as a result of the training that she received. Um, another woman in Liberia who had a, a newborn child with her, um, she told us that from the earnings from the menstrual pads that she was making, she's also investing in baked goods. So she has now two streams of income to like support herself and her newborn child. So again, not an Im- intended impact of the project, but as we kind of saw the needs, we kind of pivoted to to really support um, what women and girls needed to maintain the menstrual health and hygiene. But again, ultimately supported over 120 women now to to earn an income essentially for themselves, which was previously non-existent. Yeah, I find that's a very beautiful interconnection example, you know, mm-hmm. like perhaps you are thinking, oh, I'm going to help with the menstrual health and hygiene or the water access, but actually it's helping provide more time and more space for women to continue doing their education or working or finding ways to earn a living or live a dignified life, which I think also ultimately is well people yeah. want. <laughs> no, I think that's exactly it. Like now they're they're like agents of their own bodies and of mm-hmm. their own lives. And because some of these women are now earning an income, um, they're allowed to make decisions within their homes and within their mm-hmm. communities as well. So we're seeing the trickle effect uh that's too, which cool. is nice. Yeah. In terms of boys and men, um, Mm -hmm. I find it very interesting because there are very few organizations that focus on training or educating them on menstrual health, hygiene and education. And um, what has been the impact with them in these communities? Yeah, I think there's there's been a lot of learnings, I think, on behalf from everyone, but especially on behalf of uh, men and boys. So I think we're seeing a lot of boys in schools no longer pointing fingers and laughing at girls when they see uh, period blood on their skirts, for instance. Um, we're also seeing we have community champions who are advocating for menstrual health and hygiene throughout the, the three countries in West Africa. So we have about a 50-50% between men and boys engaged in, uh, in, in as community champions. Um, religious leaders have been an interesting one, I think, for, for the project, but essentially they were completely hands off. Women were not allowed to enter mosques or churches. Um, but now there's an openness to have women involved in, in the church or the mosques, um, even when they are menstruating. And some of the, the religious leaders have opened up their institutions to allow for sensitization campaigns to happen either before or after the congregation. So there's been good, at the community level, I think there's been good, good traction. Um, and we've heard from girls that now they're, they're not shy to ask their dads for money, uh, to buy menstrual products. And some fathers are even buying the products themselves and sharing it with their wives or their, or their daughters, which again, 
was completely unheard of before the project, but it goes to show the, the need for just awareness raising and information sharing um, because menstruating is not an illness, which is what was essentially perceived as before. Um, so not to say that everything is perfect, but definitely a huge, huge change from the onset of the project. Yeah, I find it very interesting, um, the two examples, particularly with the religious leaders, because most of these religious norms are not written on a, a, a Bible or a Quran or, you know, like it's more like interpretations of, you know, these religious teachings. And sometimes they they don't have any basis. They just continue on from generations to generations. And, you know, the, the openness, once you normalize that this is part of the human experience, um, and you start, um, normalizing, but also stop de demonizing it or, you know, seeing it in a bad light can lead to these beautiful changes. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the case of fathers as well, you know, like being engaged in the by or the, the, payment of these products or, um, you know, um, for their uh, wives or their daughters without wondering about, oh, like, this is uh, too expensive. <laughs> or, you know, you don't need that. Why Why don't you need that? Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> now it's more, well, at least from these cases that you have shared, there's a perception that the education is paralleling out from just the individual is affecting the collective. And I find that very rich and um, mm -hmm. very understated at some um, level, you know, like this is important. <laughs> well, no, it is. And it's and behavior change takes yeah. a long time, as we know. So the fact that we were like we we're in the fourth year of a four year project. So we're coming mm -hmm. into the final final few months of it. So just seeing that change within the last four years, understanding that we were impacted by COVID during this project. Yeah. So there was a lot of like stop and goes. Um, the political instabilities, as you mentioned, the flooding. So even with all these challenges, just seeing the behavior and the perception change is, is huge. Mm. Um, there's one, one young imam in, in Liberia, probably in his early twenties. He decided to become a community champion. So he's an imam. He's a community champion. He's a father. He's a husband. Um, And as a result of the work that he's engaged in through through the Herwash project, he now has taken our guides and translated them into Arabic. Oh. So his community, which is uh, in 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 Grand Cape Mountain, Liberia, now has so even the older generation who only speak Arabic or who can only read and write in Arabic have a guidebook that they can utilize and teach within their schools. So wow. I think once you find individuals who are very motivated and very passionate about it, that helps to kind of bring in others and they can influence other people for, for positive as well. Yeah. And it brings like the initiative, you know, like it's not that you told them, you know, like create this, but rather they, it comes from the self, you know, like Perfect. I want to do it. So Yeah, it's, um, it's very beautiful. <laughs> um, right, I want to finish up this interview with, um, three last questions. One of them is, um, mostly based on your experience and all that you have already, um, you know, the knowledge that you already have. What is the biggest misconception, um, based on your experience regarding menstrual health, hygiene and education? And what are some ways that we can start overcoming it? Yeah, so I think it kind of ties into the myths and taboos um, that we previously kind of talked about. But it is that feeling of shame and embarrassment 
um, because of the lack of information that's that's available, especially for women and girls in, in rural communities. Um, but I think that's probably been the one that I see as the most impactful, especially as girls are not going to school when they're menstruating because they feel shamed or embarrassed. Uh, women don't go to work. They don't practice in daily life because of it. So I think that shame and embarrassment from menstruating um, is probably one that that impacts me the most and that we've seen really impacts women and girls in the four countries that we're working in, but I'm sure it impacts others more globally um, as well. But I really think like education is at the, the key of it to really bring about change. So constant awareness, raising activities, sensitizing activities, involving community leaders, community influencers, religious authorities that we spoke about, while also kind of working and advocating local government and national government for change is really the only way that you can you can create that change and ensure its sustainability. But also sometimes it's challenging. Like sometimes it's really hard to work in some communities where cultural, social traditions um, are so deeply rooted. And I think oftentimes you just need to find a couple of individuals that you can connect with, that you can relate to, and help from that point of view, then you can have that trickle effect, especially if those individuals are people who are influential or in leadership positions. Um, but ultimately, I really do think it is that awareness raising, information sharing, and just educating um, large groups of people and not just focusing like our project really does focus on women and girls, but without involving the whole community and men and boys we wouldn't have been able to create the change that we're seeing. So making sure that it is a holistic approach, I think, is is key as well. Yeah, and seeing it all as a society conversation, not just young girls or menstruating people. Like this is affecting everybody because the shame and stigma also come from others. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that re- reinforce or that look you bad or say mean words or, you know, tell you rules that you should follow or whatever. So, um, yeah, we, we want to focus now on menstrual health, hygiene and education day, world menstrual health and hygiene for 2023. Um, as we know, menstrual health is not a standalone issue. It directly and indirectly impacts other issues as we have seen in this case, uh, from education to food security to economic empowerment and development. Um, however, it is often overlooked in the sector of international development. And um, my question for you today is if there's a message to address today or for this celebration or commemoration, what would it be? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think the statistic is like 1.8 billion people across the world have a period every month. But millions of people have to manage theirs without essentially clean water, decent toilets, or good hygiene knowledge. And we really believe that everyone who menstruates, wherever they are, whoever they are in the world, should really be able to manage their periods in a hygienic way with privacy, safety, and dignity. And we can't achieve this until we start talking about periods openly, stimulating important debates, and really creating real change. Lastly, what are some of your upcoming events? How can we follow Water Aid on social media and ways that we can support your organization? 
Great. Yep. So, I mean, Water Aid Canada, we're on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, so all the social media sites. And you can also follow us on our website at www.wateraid.org slash CA. Um, you can definitely learn more about our work that we do through water, sanitation, and hygiene, and how we integrate menstrual health and hygiene, climate financing, and really all of the work that we do on our on our website. And we definitely have additional stories uh, about the HerWash project there as well. Thank you so much, Nicole, for your time. And we are going to put all the links down below in the description box for everybody to check Water Aids organization and the different publications and research and stories that they have featured so far. Thank you so much, Nicole, for your time. Thank you, Natalia. This was great. Really appreciate it. That's it for today's episode. I truly hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and that you are connecting the dots with the different interviews that we have featured so far in our second online podcast fest. All the links connected to today's interview will be featured down below in the description box. We invite you to check the social media of the different um, organizations that we have featured for the online podcast fest, as well as to follow um, the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. We are currently on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and on Instagram at womenhood underscore IR. We would love to know your feedback, your thoughts, any questions that arise from this type of explorations and any constructive um, ideas that you have come across. So yes, I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much for tuning in and talk to you soon.